0: Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples for this series. It might be good to give a bit of a recap on the past two programs and then tell us where we're headed today.
1: Yeah, happy to do it. Um, an article was written by the prominent atheist philosopher Keith Parsons, this article goes back a ways. He uh, put it up on the web page in two thousand nine, but I just saw it a few weeks ago, and I thought it was very interesting. Uh, Keith Parsons is a, a well-respected philosopher. I think he has two doctoral degrees: one in philosophy and one in the history and philosophy of science. So he's uh, he would recognize RTB very much, uh, and Uh, he's debated various people. I mentioned that he had debated William Lane Craig and Craig usually wins, uh, the vast majority of his debates because he's smart and well-organized and systematic. But, uh, I think one of the debates that he had a challenge with was when he debated Keith Parsons and I, I came across Parsons uh, a couple decades ago, uh, is very sharp guy And he wrote this article entitled The Strongest Argument for Christianity. All you'd need to do is type in Keith Parsons and the Strongest Argument for Christianity. It'll pop up. Let me uh, give you just a couple quotations from Parsons. Um, uh, First of all, he says, look, I usually try to debunk Christianity, but today I'm going to talk about what I think their best argument is. I think that's great. I think that's the golden rule of apologetics. What's the best argument on the other side? So I appreciate that. But Parsons wants everybody to know he's not ready to convert and he's not sympathetic to belief in God or Christianity. He says, I think the arguments for the existence of God, whether considered individually or cumulatively, are totally worthless. Wow. Uh, he then says, as anyone can tell from reading my candid little tome, Why I Am Not a Christian, available in the modern library of the secular web, I regard Christian apologetics as a travesty, a farrago of bad history, inept biblical scholarship, and rampant illogic. So he's uh, he doesn't seem to be close to the kingdom by any stretch of the imagination, Uh, But he does say this, he says, a central indispensable doctrine of Christianity has always been the inherent rottenness of human beings. More formally, this doctrine is called doctrine of original sin. Of course, the doctrine of original sin was originally construed by Augustine as a taint passed on biologically from parent to child, starting with Adam and Eve. As a theory of of the genetics of sinfulness, the doctrine has always understandably elicited derisive howls from unbelievers when removed from the pseudo biological garb however the idea is quite profound and he talks a little bit about you know augustine uh in our fallen condition joe we cannot not sin that's real slavery now it doesn't mean that we Uh, have no ability, but it means we can't stop sinning. Uh, And he even uh, cites the, uh, the Reformation view of total depravity. Again, that doesn't mean we're completely evil. It means that sin has affected the entire person. And finally, he says this. He says, so the Christian depiction of the human condition seems to be spot on. This is one thing Christianity gets exactly right. There is something deeply and seemingly irremediably wrong with us. We stain everything we touch. Even the citadel of reason is breached. So chalk one big one up for Christianity. Now, uh, obviously, uh, Parsons isn't sympathetic to Christianity, but I think that's a powerful point, Joe. and, And what we've been doing in the first two shows Is I think really kind of focusing on the idea that, you know, one of the real mysteries of life, and there are a lot of big mysteries, but one right at the center is who are we as human beings? And um, we seem to be an enigma, we seem to be a riddle. Uh, Lots of people have theories. Uh, You know, Freud had a theory, Karl Marx had a theory. Uh, The Bible speaks very clearly to the human condition. I think if Christianity gets human beings right, if our view of human beings is spot on, to quote Parsons, I think that's a good reason to believe that we have a real revelation from God. Now, again, Parsons isn't going to agree with that, but nevertheless, I, I think that's a very strong point. Uh, now, we in our second program, we also talked about uh, original sin and we quoted people like Gerald McDermott and Charles Hodge, two distinguished uh, theologians. We, we mentioned the Catholic philosopher, Peter Kreeft. And of course, we went back to our standard, uh, Blaise Pascal. Uh, Pascal says, not only are people fallen, that's the wretchedness, but Pascal completes it and says, there's also a greatness about humanity. And I think that is designated in the image of God. And so uh, one of the things we say it Reasons to Believe, uh, and my colleague Fuzz has talked a lot about this, that humans are exceptional creatures. But I think Pascal f- finishes the picture uh, by saying we are great because we're made in God's image, but we are wretched because we're fallen. And I think the evilness that human beings are capable of uh, goes further. In fact, Hugh Ross said something many years ago that I have never forgotten. Hugh said that um, uh, the Christian position on human beings in comparison with a Darwinian view, uh, he said that he thought that human beings are both better and worse than what Darwinism would set forth. I think that was a very insightful point that that if we were to adopt uh, Darwinian evolution. It seems human beings are better uh, in that we're able to create the natural sciences. I mean, that's a pretty amazing invention. We're able to build technology, We're able to, uh, uh, you know, be hospitable and care for the poor, spread good medicine around the earth. But on the other hand, human beings are capable of racism, they're incapable of slavery, they're incapable, they're capable of, uh, you know, selling children into into a life of sexual slavery, the Holocaust. I think that the Christian perspective has a lot of powerful explanatory power. So what I'd like to do in this program is to look a little more carefully at some of the biblical passages, because, Joe, um, even even some Christians push back on parts of, of original sin. And then in our fourth program, where we'll wrap up the series, I'd like to look at some specific objections that that people raise. So that's kind of a summary, and I think we're ready to take off. Very good. Well, let me give uh, just a a very brief uh, definition here of original sin. Uh, The words original sin are not used in the Bible. Uh, Many people think they probably came from Augustine, uh, that he uses the term, and anybody who listens to our program knows the influence that Augustine has had. But here's uh, John Jefferson Davis, who is a fine Presbyterian theologian, longtime professor at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. In his uh, little book, uh, handbook of basic Bible texts that I quote all the time, uh, he defines original sin this way: He says the sinfulness, guilt, and susceptibility to death. Inherited by all human beings except Christ from Adam, so three things come out of original sin, as understood. Uh, one is that we become we we take on a morally corrupt nature. Now we can talk about how that nature is passed on, but uh, original sin says human beings have an innate moral corruption. To quote Augustine, we cannot not sin. Secondly, we die. Uh, And third, uh, that we are guilty in Adam. Now, by far, the most controversial part of that is the guilt in Adam. Uh, An entire branch of Christendom rejects that idea. And I'm speaking of Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, But there are Protestants who reject it. uh, Many who come out of kind of the radical reformation instead of the magisterial reformation of Lutheran, Reformed, Baptist, Anglican. It's the uh, radical Reformation groups that sometimes push back. Now, here's another definition. Uh, this is Theopedia.com, which I recommend. Very helpful. Uh, gives a lot of good information, um, and, and lay people can pick it up very easily. It's one of the reasons I recommend it. Uh, they say this about original sin. The doctrine of original sin holds that every person born into the world is tainted by the fall, such that all of humanity is ethically debilitated and people are powerless to rehabilitate themselves unless rescued by God. So again, um, I think one of the strong elements that comes out of the biblical tradition is this idea that something's gone deeply wrong with humanity. Um, Humanity is special, unique, exceptional, but also something... Deeply, deeply wrong. And of course, I mentioned that Augustine is kind of the defender of original sin. And whether you like Augustine, and not everybody does, um, you know, Eastern Christendom, they tend to think Augustine was far too pessimistic. Uh, East, the Eastern tradition, Orthodoxy, and I would include the Coptic or Oriental Orthodoxy in that as well. They, they view Augustine as being too pessimistic. They would say we have a propensity to sin, but uh, a slave to sin, they would question that. And then, of course, other people push back on Augustine, uh, his views of predestination. Uh, some say he, uh, he birthed Calvinism, Um, I think there are a lot of Reformed people who would uh, say, well, we like Augustine, but Reformed theology is its own distinct part of Protestantism. But um, Augustine has a lot to say about a lot of issues. And one of the reasons why I like him and admire him and talk about him a lot is because I think he is one of those people in church history, Joe, who is a shaper of orthodoxy. Yes, all of our doctrine is derived from Scripture, but it has to be stated. It has to be explained. It has to be defended and articulated. And that that took time. I think the Bible teaches the Trinity. I think it teaches it right from the very uh, first verses of Genesis. Uh, The Father creates, the Son speaks, the Logos and the Spirit is hovering, protecting. I think you got the Trinity in the first couple of verses. Now, that has to be expanded in light of the revelation of Jesus. But, you know, Augustine does a lot of things. He talks about original sin. He talks about the necessity of salvation by grace. He talks about the Trinity. Uh, he talks about creation ex nihilo. So whether you like Augustine or you don't like Augustine, he's a mover and a shaker. And this is what he said about original sin. He used the analogy uh, of like a hereditary disease, and it's passed on from generation to generation. You know, uh, some fundamental flaw is within us, and that is then then passed on. Now, of course, uh, the key part of this in terms of the Old Testament is Genesis chapter 3. Uh, it's It's a long section. I'm not going to read I'd have to virtually read the entire chapter, but I want to encourage everybody to do that because in Genesis 3, you have this—you have the narrative mm-hmm. where Adam and Eve, uh, we know they're created in the image of God based upon Genesis 1, 26 through 28, but uh, they're told not to eat of the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and um, they have an encounter with the devil, who is, uh, uh, you know, there's some creative language used here. He is d- described as a serpent. Uh, so, you know, and, and it's there's other figurative language. It says the Lord was walking in the garden. So so we know that uh, the literary elements are communicating the idea, the story, in a way that human beings can grasp, but but God doesn't have feet, He doesn't have legs, and He doesn't walk in the garden. But Adam and Eve, uh, through their little interaction with uh, with the devil, um, you know, he he engages in deception and tells them, "Did God really tell you that if you eat from the free the tree, you'll die? You won't die." And uh, Adam uh, Eve takes the fruit and passes it on to Adam, and uh, they immediately recognize good and evil. They're naked. Uh, they try to hide from God, uh, and I th- I think what's interesting is when God does get around to confronting them, um, Adam says, "Well, the woman you gave me, she did it," and then when he goes to Eve, she says, "Well, the serpent," and I think that. That's something we've all been doing in perpetuity since the fall. Uh, I think the natural reaction, and and, and I, I see it even in my life as a Christian, um, there's always that tendency to want to dodge moral responsibility. The, there is the tendency, I think, in human nature to minimize your own sinfulness and to maximize the people, uh, other people and their sin. Um, and, and yet God calls them on it, and uh, they are forbidden from eating of the tree of life. Now, we could talk about uh, were Adam and Eve, did they have mortal bodies or immortal bodies? There are a lot of issues that circulate around that, but they're forbidden from coming back into the garden. It, it, there is a guard, so they cannot uh, return and eat of the tree of life. Now, another point that I I think is very powerful is in Genesis 3, starting at verse 15. uh, This is after the the fall. uh, It says, and I will, God speaking, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. Uh, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is maybe the most uh, important part of the entire chapter after the fall. And that is, this is a promise of the gospel. Uh, another Adam's going to come on the scene. And this Adam is Jesus Christ. And uh, all the things that Adam didn't do, Christ does in a righteous way. And so uh, the devil is going to strike the heel of Christ, he's going to be crucified. The devil, uh, who I think suffers deeply from cognitive biases, um, he thinks, hey, I can win this by getting Christ crucified. But the wisdom of God, the providence of God uh, overrides that. And it's out of the catastrophe of Jesus's crucifixion that salvation, atonement is made. And so the devil will strike uh, Jesus's heel but Christ will crush his head. That is, Christ will destroy the power of the devil and set the captives free. And so, this is the first passage that talks about the coming of the gospel. And, uh, Joe, I never like to talk about sin unless I talk about the gospel, because, you know, if you look in the mirror uh, and you're very introspective, you realize um, we break the commandments of God. Uh, even if we don't actually do it, we think about it. Uh, Jesus says it's not enough not to commit adultery, but if you look upon a woman with lust in your eye, you've already committed it in your heart. Um, we're tempted by things. And and St. Augustine is very powerful in his book, The Confessions. You know, he asked the question, um, you know, even among the sins you haven't actually done, how often have you uh, thought about doing them or wished you've done that? So when we look at the human heart, uh, and I'm going to look at one of the passages that talks about the, uh, the brokenness of the human heart, we also need to realize the grace of God, that God has come into the world. And, and I love the bookkeeping analogy uh, Joe, there are a lot of analogies of the atonement. justification, um, propitiation, redemption. I love the bookkeeping analogy, and I I often use it because I think people can understand. I seldom anymore carry cash. I have my debit card, and uh, you know, I have money in the bank, uh, and I use the debit card. Uh, and of course, Uh, We know about credit and debit. Well, the bookkeeping analogy is that we have all debit. We have no credit. Jesus, on the other hand, has all credit and no debit. And Martin Luther says there is the great exchange. Jesus, who has all credit and no debit, takes our debit. Uh, And his death on the cross takes sin away from us. And Jesus gives us his credit. So not only do we stand before God uh, as if we have no sin, we actually stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I think that is one of the most important things that Protestant Christianity has brought to the world. And um, that's not to say that the other branches don't have grace and don't have a view of the gospel. But I I think that that's very, very important. And uh, thus, I think we have a fall here. And I think we see it in life. We see it with our self-obsession. I think we see it, you know, in a a variety of ways. But let me pause and see if you have a comment or question before we look at a few more Old Testament passages. I
0: just appreciate the fact that uh, you've explained uh, where it all started here in Genesis chapter three it's a it's a long passage as you mentioned there's there's a lot there it's filled with theological content but also human history <laughs> so this is this is part of our history so i guess my question would be uh when we say w- when we use that term original sin is also the we weren't really there and you you mentioned the passing along that Augusta. We weren't there, but yet we were there in a way, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's and that's there's a lot to unpackage. Uh I don't blame people for having questions or even objections to original sin. Even Blaise Pascal says, wow, this is kind of a mystery that somehow we're held accountable uh, for what Adam did. Um, And of course, I think that the gospel trades on original sin. God can hold us accountable, uh, corporately, whatever, because Adam wasn't just a private individual. He was a representative of the human being. Uh, And he failed, and we suffer the cost of that. Um, But Uh, If it's wrong for God to blame us for what Adam did, what does that do to the gospel where Jesus takes the blame for what we did? And, you know, again, it is mysterious, it is challenging, but I I think it carries a great deal of explanatory power. And that brings me back again to uh, Professor Keith Parsons. Um, I'm not sure that he would agree with me, uh, but I think he's made a big concession And I think that original sin just has great explanatory power. And now, again, the passing on, there are differing ideas about that. Not everybody agrees with it. Um, And of course, it, it gets into other topics as well, Joe. How do we get our soul? Does God create a fresh soul for each human being? Or do souls come from the soulishness of the mom and dad? Why do why do fam, why do certain traits come in families and things like that? So I think there's a lot of uh, a lot to sort out in Genesis chapter three. And uh, uh, but I want to look at a couple other passages. Uh, I want to take you to uh, Psalm fifty one. And uh, here is what Dave. This is a Davidic psalm. David wrote. I don't know forty or fifty percent of the psalms. Uh, David was a remarkable individual himself. He was great and wretched. I mean, he was a musician, he was a prophet, um, a soldier. I mean, he had a lot of qualities a lot of us would like to have as, as a man, as a human being. And yet David, uh, you know, reckless, gives up the whole, uh, seemingly loses everything because of his own compulsions um, with Bathsheba. Well, here's what David writes in Psalm 51.5. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Wow, what, is that? what does that mean? Uh, a lot of people push back and say, look, kids can't sin because they don't know the between good and bad. David seems to be saying, no, I, I have a nature that I was born with. In fact, uh, I was conceived in iniquity. There's no doubt St. Augustine's looking at that verse and thinking about it, you know, like a congenital illness, a hereditary illness, and it's passed on to us. Again, Augustine does think it comes, uh, you know, through transmission. uh, The sexual act is how human beings come into the world. But David says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It doesn't seem that David there is saying, well, you know, there is a, a period of time where children are kind of innocent. I don't know about your kids, Joe, but uh, my kids seem to know a lot about sin right away. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe they got it from uh, mostly from their dad because uh, my wife is uh, quite an angel, but. You know, as Joan and I have grown older, we look at our children and we see qualities and traits that we think come from me or come from her. We also think of their own uniqueness. So human beings are are, are a mystery. Now, here's Psalm 58. So we're still in the book of Psalms, which, by the way, was Augustine's favorite Old Testament book, Luther's Old Old Testament favorite book, John Calvin's Old Testament book favorite my favorite Old Testament book. There, a lot of us love the Psalms because they give us in poetry, you know, these great truths, and uh, it's it's remarkable the the revel the revelatory truth. In my church, uh, which is a Reformed Anglican church, um, we go through the Psalms yearly. Every other we- week, we we go through a Psalm where the our vicar or our pastor will read part of it, and then the congregation will read the second part of it. Well, again, here's uh, Psalm 58, verse 3. It says, even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward, spreading lies. Even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward, speaking lies. Um, I think that's a powerful verse. I think it corresponds to the way people are. We, we seem, uh, and if I went to the New Testament, it does seem to me quite clearly that Paul speaks about having a sinful nature. Now, again, we can have other debates about what happens to that nature at sanctification and whether we are freed from that nature. All of that is legitimate discussion and Christian traditions have differing ideas. But Paul seems to be that, say that we are enslaved by sin. So two passages from the Psalms talk about sin in the womb, uh, right from birth, even from the point of conception. And then here's a, a powerful passage uh, out of the wisdom literature, So the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, those would all be part of what the Hebrews called the wisdom literature. Here's one from the Proverbs 20, verse 9. I'll bet many of our listeners know this passage by heart. It says, who can say I have kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. Who can say I have kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. Now, again, uh, I mean, part of my, uh, you can know this from my history of uh, Christendom. I was baptized as a Roman Catholic as a four-year-old. My parents kind of uh, went through some challenges and we stopped going to church all that often. And then when I was uh, 19, 20 years old, through various issues, I decided to take what I believed about God seriously. I went back to the Catholic church, thought about being a priest very seriously. Um, I met my wife, Joan, uh, and I decided that I was going to have a life with her. And I bumped into Walter Martin and Walter had uh, a big influence on me, both theologically and apologetically. And I decided that I would become a Protestant. Now, um, uh, of course, there are a, a lot of issues there, but what I what I'm pointing out here is this, Joe, that I think the Western Church has got this issue correctly. Um, I think all branches of Christendom have strengths and weaknesses. I wonder, and I, I'll put it as a question. I wonder if the Eastern Orthodox tradition and the magist- and the um, radical Reformation tradition, if they have a weakness when it comes to the issue of sin, um, I don't think sin is a mere proclivity. I think it's deeper than that. Now, um, uh, can I stop there? You want to comment before we look at the Romans passage, which I think is the most important passage?
0: Uh, You can keep going. I'm tracking with you.
1: Okay, well let me let me draw everybody's attention to Romans chapter five because I, I think that this is critical. and you can go to Ephesians, you can go to Galatians where Paul talks about uh, uh, the sinful nature, where he talks about our our uh, enslavement to sin. But Paul says here in Romans 5, he starts comparing Adam with the new Adam, which is Jesus Christ. So, You know, Adam crashed and burned. Adam, as the representative man, um, rebelled against God. I have been thinking recently, Joe, that I wonder what Adam and Eve felt like. Uh, I I remember very specifically when I was a young boy, I stole something from the store. And um, I, 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 I was excited about it. I felt this rush. I didn't feel that rush when my mom and dad discovered it, and I had to take it back and uh, suffer the wrath of Jesse A. Samples, my my dad, but there was this excitement, almost an intoxication. I was doing something illicit. I wonder, in light of what the serpent said to Adam and Eve, did they feel kind of a, uh, almost a uh, a drunkenness, a a sense of, wow, I'm going to push back, I'm going to become like God. Because people have asked me, and I, I've i recently had discussions about original sin on social media. And uh, I remember one lady saying, look, uh, you know, Adam didn't have an origin. he didn't have a sinful nature. Yeah, he was tempted by the serpent, but he didn't have a sinful nature. And I said, well, uh, Lucifer not only didn't have a sinful nature, but he didn't have anybody tempting him either. Uh, and so the question is, can you sin without a sinful nature? Well, I think Lucifer did and Adam did. And what did they do? Well, I think with Lucifer, he didn't choose a bad thing. He chose a good thing himself, but he exalted a good thing above the ultimate good thing, God, He committed idolatry. I think Adam and Eve did the very same thing. And I think that this question of can people have whatever freedom Adam and Lucifer had, um, can you have freedom and not commit idolatry? Uh, that's, a, that's a big debate uh, in Christendom. Now let's look at Romans 5 because there's the first Adam and then there's the second Adam. And Jesus is the second Adam. Uh, Paul writes this in verses 10 through 12. He says, uh, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then he begins his exploration. Paul says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned." Now, what are we looking at at original sin? We're looking at, number one, that we have a corrupt nature, number two, that we die, and number three, that we have guilt in Adam. Paul says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, I don't think there's any way to interpret that other than through Adam, and death through sin, Adam and Eve's rebellion. Uh, then it goes on to say, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Now, again, there's debate about what's that exact relationship with Adam. Here's, here's Augustine's interpretation. He says, we did sin in Adam. We were in his loins. So we were there. Now, uh, you know, this question uh, is an interesting one. And, and I want to look a little bit further through Romans 5. Uh, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. One man and death. Many died by the trespasses of the one man. Uh And then uh, one trespass resulted in the condemnation or guilt for all people. Um, I think you can make a pretty solid case for original sin based upon the writings of the Apostle Paul and, you know, looking back. Now, let me give you another passage here. This is um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's my view that uh, the gospel trades on original sin, just as Adam was our federal representative. And, you know, um, there's a lot of conflict in the world right now. If the president of the United States decides to... uh, take foreign policy action and invade another nation or whatever it may be, it's not just the president who's at war, it's the United States of America who's at war. We have this collective sense. Um, If it's wrong for God to blame us for what Adam did, how is it then okay for God, in some sense, to hold Jesus accountable for what we did? It's it's this trading and and the trading again is the first Adam, the second Adam. And I I think that that's a critical idea. And again, I underscore the the point that I really appreciate the traditions that I've been in involved as a Christian. Um, There's a lot about the Catholic Church I appreciate there. I have some strong differences with the Catholic Church. But I, I, I appreciate what they taught me about the Trinity, about about the sinful nature and, and other many other things. And in fact, one of the things I most enjoyed about being a Catholic is you can be an intellectual and nobody is kind of suspicious of you. Whereas in some forms <laughs> of Protestantism, you're an egghead. If you're too smart, there's something wrong with you. And I, I push back against that anti-intellectualism. But I I. Attended a Lutheran church for a good uh, number of years. I took my undergraduate degree at Concordia, Irvine here in Southern California. So I attended a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, cited the same creeds that I recited as a Catholic. Then I spent uh, a long time in a Reformed church. We recited the same creeds. We talked about original sin uh, and we talked about the gospel. Um, you know, law and gospel was something that the Reformed tradition emphasizes greatly that, you know, uh, you have guilt, grace, and gratitude. The law shows your, you, your heart. Um, uh, you know, think of the Ten Commandments. You, you'll, you'll have no God before me. Well, um, I think I put myself before God. I put my own desires before God. Maybe I haven't made a graven image, but I certainly put myself before God. Uh, do you take the Lord's name in vain? Uh, do you honor your mother and father? Uh, how about uh, you know? H- how about murder? How about adultery? How about stealing? How about false witness? How about envy? Uh, the law shows you that you are a broken person. You are guilty. You have missed the mark. Uh, The gospel, however, tells you that this second Adam, who has all the credit, he puts it to our account. He imputes his righteousness. Um, You know, sanctification is a challenging process, uh, and yet it's awfully important to say that when Paul says we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, Paul, both in Ephesians and Titus, says that the fruit of that grace is loving obedience to God. Paul says in Galatians, the only thing that matters is faith working in love. And I like what uh, both Luther and Calvin uh, said, faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. That, That wonderful force, power, and benevolence from God not only saves us, but it motivates us as believers to want to honor God. Now, that's a difficult process. And uh, when people tell me that they doubt sin, I say, well, stop being selfish. Uh, Stop envying, stop lusting. Just stop it. Don't do it anymore. Uh, The great author C.S. Lewis said, nobody knows how bad they are until they try very hard to be good. And you realize, wow, that sin nature is still there. Thus, my point that original sin has a lot of explanatory power in this kind of context. Mm. So let me make one more point here, uh, Joe. Um, Salvation is grounded on our federal relationship to Adam. But if it's wrong for God to blame us for what Adam did, then it's also wrong for God to blame and punish Christ for what we did. In scripture, Christ is called the second Adam, who repairs the break in fellowship caused by the first Adam. In other words, in his atonement, Jesus became collectively responsible for humankind's sinful actions. So I'm trying to read uh, what the Apostle Paul here is doing, and Uh, Here is my take. Uh, I think what makes the Apostle Paul very distinct as an Apostle is, I think, more than any of the other uh, Apostles and uh, any of the apostolic authors, one of Paul's critical roles is to explain the New Testament in light of the Old Testament, to explain the person of Christ as Messiah in light of that Hebraic idea of Yahweh's relationship to his distinct people. So I, I think when you let go of original sin, uh, it creates other problems, potentially. And um, I also come down on Augustine's side when it comes to freedom. Now, this uh, this idea often comes up, Joe, because everybody's interested, Who who is interested in apologetics is interested in the question, of can people reach out and grab salvation? Mm-hmm. And once we have it, can we resist it? Um, I think that that's a very Im- important element. And when we look at things like um, libertarian freedom, how much freedom does the human will really have? How much grace has to come in? These, I think, are are they have been debated for centuries because they really are very important biblical ideas but let me let me pause and you tell me what you think or yeah just a, a question
0: on this ken um what did adam and eve lose um we, you know you talked about the break in fellowship and our fallen condition original sin all of that but was there uh, any kind of innocence um and righteousness that and if so, uh, if they had that, how did they? How are they susceptible to to not having it? You see what I'm getting at?
1: Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I again, I think the, I, I think the question of how sin affects the human being. I, I don't want to overstate what what we often call the noetic effects of the Paul of the fall. Noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C, not Noah, noetic, which has to do with the mind. Uh, noeto, I think is the, is the particular word. How does sin affect the will? How does it affect the mind? I don't want to overstate it because obviously um, you don't have to be a Christian to be really good at mathematics. You don't have to be a Christian to be really good at philosophy. You don't have to be a Christian to be a good scientist, to be a good historian. Uh, You know, you can be super smart and have all kinds of good qualities uh, without that affecting your sin. But, you know, to try to address your question more directly, I think it, it seems to me that Adam and Eve did kind of have a new perspective that they were provided and they had lost that level of innocence uh, and they were aware, uh, seemingly for the first time, of their condition before God. Um, and I, I also don't doubt that, as human beings, there is kind of a an initial period of our life where we're not aware of all of these uh, kinds of things. Um, you know, uh, I I think that you kind of come to the awareness of how sin does affect your your own thinking and how uh you know these kinds of things are and and in terms of sanctification um you know i i think the apostle paul again spends a lot of time talking about things you want to incorporate in your devotional life um and i would go so far to to say this and this this is something that i think has real apologetic import uh Joe, one of the descriptions of sin, of course, uh, the Bible describes sin as breaking commandments. And that makes sense because God is a, a God of, of moral principles. We break the commandments. It says we miss the mark, it's kind of the archer pointing at the X and it, you know, it moves away from the target. Uh, we've missed the mark. But then in Romans, it uh, Paul describes sin as a blindness. We see, understand and know yet we secretly suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I think that this has a lot of import. Um, I think that we have cognitive biases. That is, we have prejudices and and we make judgments, unfair judgments, and we're not even aware that we're doing it. Um, you know, there is this kind of, uh, breakdown i i would even go so far as to say that when uh, atheists say there's a problem of god's hiddenness now, now again that's a big topic and i think there are many things that need to be said to that and there have been times where god seemed hidden to me and even in the old testament it describes god as a god who hides himself that could deal with god being transcendent and i'm imminent uh you know, God is eternal and I'm temporal. I have all of these limitations. So sometimes God might seem far away because of my my finitude. Could also be because of my fallenness. Often when I don't feel close to God, I recognize there's a correspondence of things that I have uh, said or done that I need to repent of. But having said all of that, uh, you know, when uh, atheist philosophers say there's a problem. God doesn't reveal himself uh, and he has that obligation. He's supposed to be all loving and all all caring and yet there are people who through through no fault of their own don't believe. They're op- they're wide open, they're neutral. Well, what I would say is not according to scripture,'re we're not we're not neutral. We're not open. Um, and we have this natural tendency, and I still see it in my life when people want to kind of put the finger on my personal responsibility. I notice this impulse to want to dodge. Well, what, you know, I, honey, you know, with my wife, honey, I'm sorry. Uh, I just feel really tired. Or honey, I'm sorry, I just had a bad day. When I should just say, you know what, honey, I'm just sorry. <laughs> um, I think there's always that impulse. And I think that original sin is kind of like, now I'm using an analogy, it's kind of like a huge cognitive bias. It uh, it clouds our thinking. Um, and and here's, here's another point that I think is powerful, Joe. Just because you're highly educated or really smart doesn't mean that you are morally astute. I mean, Germany in the 30s, uh, according to, to uh, one source, they had more doctoral master's and bachelor's degrees per capita given their population than any time in history. And yet what happens to Germany? Uh, the economy goes bad and a dictator takes control and we see evil like we've never seen it before. And you know, uh, you have brilliant scientists, or brilliant philosophers, or brilliant authors of literature. It doesn't mean that they don't make, you know, their thinking is always correct morally. And this, of course, then reads, you know, leads to the apologetic question. I don't think apologetics is purely just presenting the right arguments at the right time. And people will naturally come to the conclusion. Um, I believe that God's grace. We're saved by grace. It is through faith. I think God uses arguments and reasons typically to bring people to that point. But uh, we are fallen creatures and there is a spiritual war. And that's very difficult for non-Christians to appreciate or to to understand. And... um, it tells me how important it is for those of us who see ourselves as evangelists and apologists to try to live a kind of life that will demonstrate that uh, our faith is more than just a series of arguments. So I'm going to stop there. I, I don't know if you there's anything you want to talk about. Maybe we could also give some sources for this uh, topic. Yeah.
0: No, this was very well explained, Ken. I... I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's helpful to look at the biblical passages that that you explained, and to see the language there. Uh, it's it's pretty clear. Uh, it's uh, it's right there in, in the Old Testament from the very beginning, Genesis three, through other parts of the Old Testament, and in the New. So, the idea is there. So I guess that sets us up pretty well for objections in the in the last uh, podcast of this series, but. I found it very helpful, Kim.
1: Well, good. I uh, I want to encourage people uh, to look at a couple sources. Um, I wrote a book a number of years ago entitled uh, Seven Truths That Changed the World. And I have a particular section. I'm even going to give you the chapters here so people can uh, you know focus on it very, very carefully. Um Uh, chapters 9 and 10. Chapter 9, I talk about moral goodness and the human condition. That's the fall. And then in chapter 10, I I have a chapter entitled God to the Rescue. So I talk about the gospel. That'll lay out those ideas. I spend a lot of time looking at original sin. I quote uh, Pascal, St. Augustine, and other people. So that's a really good source. Um, I would also encourage people to... uh, Take a look at um, this handbook of basic Bible texts by uh, John Jefferson Davis. What I really like about that book, and I'm I'm going to promote that book for just a minute here. Um, I love that little book, and it and it's you know it's not very long. He wrote it, uh, Davis wrote it for his students, and he takes the key passages in the key areas of systematic theology. So if you want to look at the atonement here's the key passages. If you want to look at uh, Original Sin, here are the key passages. The Trinity, the Incarnation, that's a really good book to then scale down. And then you can look at some of the the commentaries uh, as to these particular passages. So I've written four articles, I think, on Original Sin. I I know in the queue, I have another one coming. So uh, I've written a lot about the topic because I think it's an important topic that that is often ignored. And the last thing I'd say, Joe, is this. Think about the Christian worldview. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. I mean, a critical component in the Christian worldview is the fall. And that's what we'll look next time. There are Christians and non-Christians who object and say, wait a second, what What do you mean fall? Uh, doesn't that create uh, more problems than it does solutions? And That's where we'll go next.
0: All right. Sounds good. Looking forward to that. That's going to wrap it up. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Let us know your comments and questions. Reach out to Ken via Twitter at RTB underscore K samples. And we'll be glad to read your comment or question here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the reasons to believe podcast on Apple podcasts, Podbean and most podcast services. For Can Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.